Welcome back to the season one finale of March Mad Men. We're in the midst of the Toby Awards, honoring the highs and lows of this tournament. Up next is the award for funniest moment in any of the 32 films competing for the title of greatest haunted house movie ever made. By the end of this podcast, you'll know which of our finalists earns that designation. Will it be The Shining, Lake Mungo, Terrified, or Oculus? Let's find out. Here are the nominees for Funniest Moment. Stiffing the Caterer in Amityville Horror. Rod Steiger going blind in the church in The Amityville Horror. The Puking Nun in The Amityville Horror. Ghost Sex in The Legend of Hell House. And James Ramar fakes strangling his wife in What Lies Beneath, which, I don't know, I laugh my ass off at that. Maybe I'm alone. <laughs> that, All right. that one, uh, yeah, the, the, the execution of that one is, is exceptional. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. For a throwaway, absolutely. Okay, thank you, thank you. Rich, why don't you kick us off on this category? Wow, what a sweep by Amityville. It's, it's hard not to pick one from Amityville. I'm going to go right for what I think is a glaring winner here, which is stiffing the caterer in Amityville. <laughs> Boom. I do, I do love James Remar fake strangling his wife, but I, I will say that that one is meant to be a joke. and is meant to make you laugh, whereas stiffing the caterer is not in Amityville, and somehow that really adds to the entertainment value. <laughs> yes. That you, you're not even sure like what they're getting at with the level of seriousness with which they treat the, the – uh, the check that that has gone missing for the caterer and the level to which James Brolin takes it is the highest of drama with the lowest of stakes in a movie bordering on nonsensical at that point in the plot. So it has all the ingredients for a, for a funniest moment. That was the moment where I feel like you were really, at least everyone on this podcast was like fully invested in the film. Once you got to the caterer scene. It is a movie that takes itself so seriously that everything being so hilarious is utterly unintentional. And that only, as is always the case, amplifies the power of the humor. That there's just no tongue-in-cheek in that film whatsoever. God bless their hearts. All right, Vic, where are you going to weigh in? Are you are you with the tide, or are you going to swim upstream like a salmon? What makes James Remar pretending to strangle his wife, which is really funny, and what makes it work is the fact that it's the culmination of the entire B story of the movie. Like yes, it's literally, yes. it literally just pays off with that joke. Uh, and yeah, we're lucky that that joke works. <laughs> right, like we've burned a lot of screen time on her fears about that woman and the fact that James Rumar is going to kill her and then he did kill her and now maybe he's going to kill someone else and it all culminates with him. Ha ha, you thought I killed my wife <laughs> in this throwaway body language gag, this psych gag yeah. in the background he's of a great. shot. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm, I'm actually, I am voting for the puking nun in Amityville. Oh, okay. 
that the the foley work on that is just <laughs> atrocious. It's just it's it just it's it's like someone who had only seen vomit but never heard it it's like well, i think this is what it sounds like uh oh god yeah i, I laugh my ass off that you respect oh. all the other moments in amityville again it, the, the, those are there's no wrong choice here i'll throw a little love to rod steiger having this full-on meltdown that ends with him going blind in the middle of the church it's it's it is fantastic but no it's it's stiffing the caterer obviously i think we all agree clearly if we had a funniest movie category amityville would win hands down so it was just a question of which of these we were going to give the toby to and for me the most absurd i can't believe they're making a scene out of this moment is is stiffing the caterer the caterer's over the top righteous outrage james <laughs> Poland. James Brolin's out-of-control physical intimidation, how long the scene goes on for. All of it is just so deliciously batshit that I love the fact that a movie indulges it all. This movie makes a plot line out of a caterer getting stiffed, and it mines every ounce of melodrama out of that that it could possibly do. That is special. So I think that's kind of the overarching criteria for me in handing out these awards are what are the things that I'm going to remember most about this process and each of these films. And this absolutely fits the bill. I am glad that Hell House got a, got a shout out. The ghost sex scene in that movie was <laughs> especially bizarre. It, it felt like a moment out of Houseu a little bit, just outside the realm of like uh, what you consider any kind of normal haunting enough to really grab your attention and make you feel like you're watching something that is that was not 100% normal. I'm, I'm glad it got mentioned. It was, was pretty weird. It was pretty, it was jaw-dropping for sure. Yeah. yeah. Can I just say too that I am, uh, of, of the Rod Steiger moment in Amityville, I am now obsessed with the idea of wanting to see Nicolas Cage do that scene. Yeah. Like oh my it's God. Like we were talking about it and I'm really, I'm like, I'm looking at my savings account going, how much money would Nicolas Cage charge me just to – if I just rented out a church and was like, look, I'll give you X amount of money. I'm not going to talk about how much money I have in my savings account. I'll give you this much money. It's just for me. I'm going to film it on my camera. I'm going to show it to John and Rich. Money well spent, Vic. Yeah. I mean, more than you want. I get the feeling that Nicolas Cage will do anything, but I also don't think he's cheap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think he he definitely would entertain the conversation, but but we're talking six figures probably. Shia LaBeouf would do it for free, so that's something to think <laughs> yeah. about. Not quite the same, but you know uh, that could definitely scratch the itch. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on to some more specific to the haunted house world awards and categories. Let's tackle Best Seance. Obviously, this is a staple of the Haunted House film, and we've got a lot of them to to choose from. So the nominees are Legend of Hell House, The Others, The Orphanage, The Changeling, or one of a bunch in Ouija, Origin of Evil. I'm going to go first just for the hell of it. I don't have a lot to say here, and I I get the feeling you guys might pick other ones, but I'm just going to say for me it was Legend of Hell House. 
There's a lot of weird optical effects and tense performances, and it just generally had a creative, creepy approach to the seance that kind of made that one stand out as the most memorable for me. I really did like Geraldine Chaplin's uh, seance in the orphanage. I thought that the the whole like the the mapping out of her movements and the the discovery of the the room and, and her reacting to the voices was all very effective. It was all shot in, in the dark and it was very like atmospheric and and kind of chilling. I'm actually going to pick the Changeling. Um, it was one of the moments that really stuck with me out of the movie. I would say it is the most prototypical seance. For me, like it was actually the first movie I watched in this entire competition, and it and so it became like the, the the movie by which a lot of the cliches, because it did seem to contain them all, would be judged uh, as we as we move forward through it. And I thought that that it it got a lot of those cliches right from the recorder, the tape to tape deck that was recording and, and played back later with the the creepy voices. But the thing I really remember is the the handwriting, yeah. which is something you would see over and over again. But somehow had an un, had an intangible quality in the changeling. There was an unhinged nature to the way that she was writing at the paper, and, and the, the, the her assistant was pulling the papers away from her. Like it felt dangerous, which is not a word you use a lot when you're talking about handwriting. It was very classical and sort of like staid and, and traditional, but but it stuck with me. I loved that, and I think that was a really close second for me just because that is a a seminal seance yeah it's been copied it's really effective and the automatic writing i think is what you call that was extremely weird and creepy and kind of violent and it's it's great vic what are your thoughts i also picked the changeling so yeah i agree and it's i what what pops into my head is her saying did you die in this house yeah. Did you die in this house? Uh, it has a. It, it's not. She doesn't get my pick for best psychic. But Spoiler. There's something, the, there's something about this sort of droning quality of it that was was really sort of eerie. It's, it's definitely the for me the standout seance. Yeah, I, I think you guys rightfully win that category, but I don't know why. I I really like that the Hell House seance is just sort of odd and sensual and visually interesting but um won't argue with you although i would say my runner-up would probably be henry thomas's seance in ouija origin of evil oh where he outs the lies yeah Mm. i was listening to our our podcast of uh where we covered that recently and it really is an effective scene and and henry thomas really is good in it It's it's a cool that's a cool little scene too it's a cool twist on it yeah i think we actually had a lot of strong contenders in this category yeah, um, I mean, I guess we there's shouldn't a, be. There's surprised. a lot of fucking seances, John. True. Yeah, some well, some Ouija, more memorable than others. Ouija really did it. Like, I mean, you, you know, we made a note of like you you have to like pick a seance out of Ouija, but like part of that is like a testament to the fact that like they had several that are all memorable. Yep. Um, you know, I I remember the, the I think it's the first session where the the younger daughter has taken over and is giving the seance for the the older man talking to his wife that sort of sticks in my mind in terms of like making like that emotional connection to the seance and even the faked seances um like are mm-hmm. sort of fun to unpack including the very first one in the movie like it's got a real juice to it yeah the way yeah. that the way that they're sort of like manipulating and there's a mm-hmm. there's a mixture of 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 real and 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 fake happening in it so yeah he he captured something nice in those scenes i think the seances are 
among the more memorable scenes in the in, in these films. And I guess that's a great segue to best psychic. We also have some strong contenders here. Lots of fairly indelible performances. Leading off the category is Zelda Rubinstein in Poltergeist. Haley Hudson from The Pact. She was Stevie the Goth Girl. Lynn Shea in Insidious. Vera Farmiga in The Conjuring. Geraldine Chaplin in The Orphanage. And Carolyn in Amityville Horror, who is an amateur psychic at best. I was going to say, I'm trying to remember who Carolyn Amityville was, and I just want to clarify. Is she the one who had to scream, it's a portal to hell? Yes, yes. She is the kooky friend who declares that she's a psychic and basically becomes tantamount to, to one, but it's totally tacked on and doesn't make any sense, and she's a really loopy character in a really loopy film, but I find her really charming. So I wanted to mention her. <laughs> All right. Uh, Vic, why don't you uh, name your winner and we'll go from there. This is tougher than I thought it would be. I mean, I, so I, I have my winner circled. I really struggled with like Zelda Rubenstein feels like maybe should she be in the favorite character section as opposed to best psychic, but this does seem like the better fit. And yet I still went with Haley Hudson in uh, the pact. I wow. thought she had a, a really different, interesting presence. We talked a mm-hmm. lot about it when we, when we did that movie and yeah, I just, I, she, she really stands out. I mean, obviously not Vera Farmiga. I, I like Jeremy, Geraldine Chaplin. She's fine. Carolyn is a, a, a fun choice. Lynn Shea is better in other things. So it's really for me between Zelda Rubenstein and Haley Hudson. And I, I just thought her spin on it was different. I feel like Zelda Rubenstein sort of sort of laid down the template and Haley Hudson did did that character did something very different and, and I sort of respected that. Yeah, I, I like that she she like had a handler, which was sort of like yeah. a novel like like twist on it. There was something about her performance. Like when I think of her performance, I I go straight to uh, to Stir of Echoes for some reason. There's something very '90s about the the character that that, that she's portraying in it. Um, this sort of like psychologically like fragile like goth girl. I really love the introduction of her character, but that was more about the filmmaking, like the, the the sort of blaring industrial music that was just drowning out the rest of the scene. And I liked her. I just like I don't know that I would go with best psychic. I I think I am going to go a little more straight down the line here. I remember saying when we did Poltergeist that like you're not going to find a better psychic than than Zelda Rubinstein, and like I, I stand by that. I think that she's the hardest to forget, and and time has proven that to be true. And part of that is just her being a, a pretty incredible character actor. And that character actor finding the right role, and so there's there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Zelda. I, I like that I'm going last here because I'll read my exact notes, and um, sometimes we are very much in alignment. Here are my notes. I really like Haley Hudson in the Pact as psychic counter programming, but I have to give the nod again to the OG in this category, as I think it's the gold standard all others are compared to. 
Of course, I'm talking about Zelda Rubenstein's character, Tangina, in Poltergeist. For me growing up, she became synonymous with psychics, and it's such a commanding, charismatic performance that it overshadows everyone else. It's worth pointing out that all these years later, and even I, Zelda Rubenstein died years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. But when, when Donald Trump left office, I saw numerous memes with pictures of her superimposed over the White House saying, mm-hmm. this house is clear. Like, clean, that is clean, Vic. Clean. Damn it, I never get it right. Yeah. I'm sitting here going, is it clean or clear? <laughs> and, and then all I can think about is, is Ace Ventura when I'm trying to figure out which way it goes. So, uh, but either way, that's, I mean, I think that that speaks to the, the staying power of, of her performance. So I, I, obviously I would not argue with that. She's kind of a cultural institution, I think. Definitely had staying power. I am going to throw out, um, as king of the, the Mungo heads here, I'm going to say that I think that Ray, the psychic from Lake Mungo, was overlooked in this category. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough, Rich. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't think it was a conscious uh, snub on my part. So right. I, don't, I don't think it's at all clear that Ray is actually psychic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's 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 fair, but I guess like that that's part of what makes him a unique entry in the the canon of of psychics. Uh, the way he ingratiates himself to the family that he's, that he's not psychic. <laughs> he's not psychic. Yeah, but it could be just be like a charlatan. Isn't isn't the the question of whether or not they're a charlatan always on the table with any of these psychics? Yes, certainly, certainly. Because of his uniqueness, I mean, he's almost a counterpart to, like, Haley Hudson as counter-programming to the traditional psychic. And so, yeah, definitely a welcome presence um, who breaks from a lot of cliches, which is the perfect segue to our next category, which is biggest cliche of the genre. Here are our choices, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. A girl's sheets being pulled off the bed while she is in it. An insidious imaginary friend. A seance. A Ouija board. A group of intrepid ghost hunters. Cryptic recordings. People who have hanged themselves. And armoires. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely props to whoever threw out armoires. <laughs> Vic. You are, you are welcome, sir. Biggest, this is not favorite cliche or least favorite cliche. This is just biggest, this is the most indelible cliche of the genre. Is that the idea? Uh, I think that biggest cliche is a somewhat personal, subjective choice. For you, it could be the one that is the most prevalent. It could be the most overpowering slash annoying. It could be the one that is most memorable, your biggest takeaway, like whatever, however you want to interpret that. The least inventive. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, exactly. That would be very fair. Like the most cliche cliche. (laughs) Yeah. I'll go first on this one and... It's a no-brainer, personally, because my theme of all of these has been what made the biggest impression on me going through the process of watching all these films and studying them. And now this stands out like such a sore thumb to me 
as a truly bizarre and inexplicable trope of the haunted house subgenre. It just makes so little sense. It almost seems vestigial, like some inherited requirement. No one remembers how to justify, but it's become obligatory. So if you make one of these movies, you have to do it. And of course, I'm talking about a girl's sheets being pulled off the bed while she is in it. (laughs) To me, this just feels like the spectral equivalent of a wet willy or TPing somebody's house. I get that it's disconcerting. I wouldn't like it either if I'm in bed and somebody pulls my bed sheets off of me. It, it would be scary if it happens to you, but watching it in a movie, it's a dumb prank. There's almost never any real menace or payoff attached to it in these movies. So I see it as kind of the equivalent of Michael Myers giving some victims a wedgie and letting them go after that, at least for the moment. It just seems ludicrous. I feel like the fact that it is always a woman is it is a way of transmitting like the most like mild amount of like malice possible in the sense that like it's not actually doing anything to them. But you but you don't know what the figure is. You know, it's aggressive and that the female characters are typically like set up as being vulnerable in that scenario. And there is something threatening about disrobing them in this in this way of removing a bed sheet that is like the, in, insinuates the like no good is going to come of this presence. Um, it's symbolic. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. That yeah. the, the, the yeah the, like a, a violation of some kind is going to occur. I'm with you 100. percent I this this is also like the the cliche that I that I could not have named prior to going through this process. Right, exactly. Um, All of the rest of these, maybe with the exception of people hanging in armoires, which are 100% accurate in terms of being cliches that just appear in film after film for inexplicable reasons. All the rest of them, I I think I probably could have named before we started this process. But somehow a girl's sheets being pulled off the bed just keeps showing up in every single film. Even films where where women aren't the primary characters. <laughs> yeah. Just of all things to, to make mandatory. I, I just don't know how that ended up being one of them. I get seances as you were alluding to, like I get Ouija boards, why those are so popular, why that has to be in them. It's beyond me. Is that your choice as well? Uh, Rich? That is, okay. That is my choice as well. Yeah. Okay. Over to you, Vic. I'm going to go with the insidious imaginary friend. Largely because that was the one that could be effective sort of early on in the process. And by the end, I was just like, oh, fuck, who cares about her <laughs> your fucking goddamn Jody with the, the Halloween light eyeballs? Like, who gives a shit? Like, it it just became less effective as as I watched it over and over and over again. That, that's a cliche that has to be sustained much longer too. Like the girl, yeah. like at least like the sheets is just like a gag. Right. And like either, either you did it effectively or you didn't, but the imaginary friend, I mean, you're, you're basically talking about establishing your antagonist for the entire film. And, and people were returning to that same trope over and over again. And I feel like that's something we're going to encounter more of. And probably, I mean, probably several of these, but like, as we go through 
just more horror films generally, we're going to see a lot of that. But yeah, the imaginary friend thing really did feel after watching 32 movies incredibly played out. Like I would, I could never imagine writing a movie where a kid has an imaginary friend in it now. Wow. You, you make a very compelling argument there, Vic, for how, yeah, as Rich was saying, it's not one scene or a gag. It's a plot point. It might even be the antagonist of the film. So it has a cast an outsized shadow over the entire plot. And yeah, it rarely totally works. You, you're never like, oh, God, Jody was so fucking scary, man. It's just... Even- we always talk about Jody and Toby, but like even Tony in The Shining, like when Danny's moving his finger and doing the voice, like they do that about as well as they could. And I think they make good changes from the book in order to make it work. But that's still like it's basically the same thing. Tony's no different from Jody. No, or- it's different because that's the only good one. Like he's he's an ally, not an antagonist. He's not oh, the I- demon. I guess, I mean, in that respect, that's true. Again, no fault at all to Stephen King or or Stanley Kubrick in 1980 or whatever. But when I watch it now, I'm like, fuck, he's got an imaginary friend. I, I don't quite put it in the same category, but I can see why you would. Of course you don't, John. <laughs> I, I, I feel like maybe the most successful in my memory was The Orphanage. Like to yeah. that one, at least that one paid off in an, in an, a fairly early scene, and that the imaginary friend played a broader role in the downfall of the of the character. But we, they're really not. They're just ghosts that we haven't seen yet. Correct? Isn't that right? I mean, we see the ghosts later. Well, yeah, but isn't that always the case? I mean, like I guess like you never see Toby in Paranormal Activity three, but like. Toby is still the ghost in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just mean like they were her, the the mother's friends who are dead. And for a brief period of the film, we don't see them. We see them at the beginning and then they disappear for half an hour and then we start seeing them again. Well, sure. Except, but I mean, the, the kid is playing with his imaginary friends. Like that's the, that's the whole bit at the beginning. Right. Is that I can't remember the name of that. Was it Tomas? The the yeah. with the bag on his head that he meets in the cave. Right. Uh, I'm I'm referring to that portion of the film. I mean that that's still a solid like imaginary friend segment that happens. Like it, it's certainly for like the first act where he's like leading them back home with with seashells and mm-hmm. and that kind of business. I guess what I'm arguing is I would narrow my scorn, and maybe this is why I didn't pick it. Um, I would narrow my scorn to family moves into house demon starts communicating with, for the purposes of possession, manipulation, whatever, a young girl in the house who the young girl starts reporting to her family and siblings and parents that she has an imaginary friend like that. Like I'm very laser focused on that is what I am annoyed by. Not like just the overall umbrella concept of, somebody who's invisible for a while. But yeah, I mean, overall, I guess it's overused. Well, John, maybe that's what you should have written when you were making out the nominations. I'm just saying, you know, that's on me, buddy. Also, also, I'm going to throw this out there. I know you guys voted for something else. The winner is the imaginary friend. You know why? Because they're the fucking Tobies guys. (laughs) 
When your awards are named after a cliche, you get the award. <laughs> oh, we couldn't call them the sheeties, though, could we? <laughs> <laughs> I have half a mind to. <laughs> Good point, Vic. Good point. Okay. Best on-screen kill is coming up next. The big one. Yep, this is definitely traditionally in horror films. We're we're getting, we're moving up the ladder to the prestige awards here, and not the genre's strength though. No, not this particular subgenre's strength. Definitely not. But I think we've got some solid ones here. Various a, a wide range of different types of kills, though we will see certain commonalities emerge. Here we are. The nominees are. Little Girls Jump Out the Window in Woman in Black, The Piano Kill in Haosu, The Male Lead Gets Pretzeled in Paranormal Activity 3, A Panicked Holt McCallany Exits the Sub in Below, Larry Fessenden's Death by Orbitoclast in Session 9, Martin Freeman's Suicide in Ghost Stories, Harrison Ford is grabbed by an underwater ghost in What Lies Beneath. Jacinto is stabbed and grabbed by an underwater ghost in Devil's Backbone. A boy is hit by a bus in Terrified. An old lady is hit by a bus, okay, maybe it's an ambulance, in The Orphanage. And nixed by Vic, but loved by some, the kid being murdered in the bathtub in The Changeling. I threw that one out there and I'm mentioning it just because like some people, and I, I tend to agree, like it is a child murderer. It's, it's pretty disturbing. So I mentioned it. All right. That's a, that's a large category guys. A lot of ways we could go here. Not expecting us all to agree. Uh, Rich, what's your pick in terms of just the, the, the gore, the, the effects I have to give a shout out to the orphanage. Uh, I wouldn't say that the kill itself is great, but I do think that in terms of just like the, the visual uh, aftermath of it, um, nothing shocked me quite as much as the, as the, the effects that they used on the woman's face after she had been yeah. hit. That's one of the more grisly things in this whole tournament, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty in, in a movie that that is this maligned for its saccharine ending. Um, it's and, and rightfully so. <laughs> that, one, that one pops up, yeah. Little girls jump out the window. I think it's interesting that that, that you chose that from Woman in Black. I would actually go with the 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 girl who dies by fire in Woman in Black um, over the girls jumping out the window. Although I agree that there's some lovely like symmetry and and filmmaking going on. The girls jumping out the window, but. I, I thought it was a good way to start a movie. It's kind of where I'm giving it props. It's a good way to start the movie. I'm actually going to go with the the movie that I mentioned earlier that I want to see get a little love, which is Martin Freeman's Suicide and Ghost Stories. You know, we talked a little bit about the time. Like, it's kind of the moment that that defines that movie. It's such a highlight that that despite problems that people have with it, like everyone kind of agreed that that it was worth making it for the, just like the, the sheer shock value of it. That is a, a combination of like pacing and cinematography and execution. No pun intended. It turns the direction of the movie around. Um, it's not only a, a death in itself, but it's a, it's also a, a plot point. 
Yeah, I think that's going to be my my shot. I, uh, shot. Yeah, Your right, shot. Your shot. <laughs> I was going to say I started to have second thoughts here because I I do have a soft spot for the for the stabbing of Jacinto in the in the devil's backbone. Um, also, but also a good pun. I'm not. Yeah, the soft spot. I'm not. I'm not crazy about the way that he goes down in the pool. Boom. All right, I'm out. <laughs> Wow, that was a lot of puns in a short period of time. Well, I'll let uh, Vic bat clean up. I'll go next, and then he can he can take us home. I'm going with, uh, and I, I get the feeling uh, this is not one that gets Rich's vote, but I like a panicked Holt McCallany exits the sub and below. <laughs> this was a fairly tough call, but again, I'm going with the one the choice in a category that stands out the most for me, that is most memorable, that I find the most unique. No question. It's that character Loomis getting impaled on a radio antenna in below. It's just such a well-timed surprising and satisfying in an odd and unlikely way, way to die. You know, it, 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 it just tickles my fancy in, in a way that few kills do, especially in a subgenre not known for inventive fatalities. It has uh, this subgenre. Sorry. <laughs> subgenre. <laughs> oh, Vic. Thank you. <laughs> I wish that was intentional. It has this kind of hoist by his own petard quality that I found amusing, but it doesn't diminish the shock value of the kill and the way it's timed. When I think about kills from this competition in the future, I think it's always for me going to be the first one that comes to mind. So I've been talking about it as long as we've been, you know, talking about below. So that was, that, that was going to be the obvious choice for me all, all along. The one thing I want to point out is that, uh, when I saw the little girls jump out the window in woman in black, I absolutely agree with that as an, an exceptionally well framed and shot and uh, seen in a hell of a way to open a movie. But the one that jumped out at me was the girl who drinks lie and then mm-hmm. is like vomiting up blood in the police station or where the, wherever yeah. the fuck it is that he bumps into her. So I just want to point out that the woman in black didn't make it out of the first round, but probably has three of the best kills in the whole, the whole competition. So once again, you guys suck, but that is- <laughs> Uh, I, I no, will say that you were talking about earlier, like there's this one part in that movie, you know, his first night, uh, Daniel Radcliffe's in the, in the house. And I remember totally being on board, but for some reason I had to stop watching it. And I watched the second half of the movie the next day. And I don't know if that did the film any favors, but no. yeah, I, I watched it all together. That, that movie's second half is super weak, but I, I agree that the setup, the setup is, is good and the deaths the deaths are good like it's mm-hmm. a very pretty film i don't know what that director has gone on to do but i would be interested in, in seeing it i think it was a flawed script yeah set design yeah. and cinematography go a long way in that movie scripts not so much yeah 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 kind of like uh uh what lies beneath anyway no i also went with martin freeman's suicide and ghost stories oh, okay. that was that that was the the one that my jaw just fell open and I was like, what the fuck just happened? Like it really, that made a, a very visceral impact on me. Hmm. Uh, I, I can't tell you why it doesn't do as much for me. I mean, I don't think it sucks, but it, 
wasn't a really strong contender for me. Oh, well. Well, it's interesting, John. I mean, you really latched on to that, that sense of sort of like the, the, the novel kill, which I, I think is really what you prize in a, like a slasher movie, right? Yeah. Uh, that's sort of like traditional, like horror. So I, I think that your justification makes a lot of sense. And by the same nature, I'd say that like Larry Fesden's death in session nine kind of falls in the same category. Yes. Uh, I but, mean, Martin, Martin Freeman just gets, he gets so much mileage out of like Vic saying, it's just like the shock value, but it's like, you're talking about a, about a, a movie that like spends a good period of time setting you up and like kind of ratcheting up the suspense of like what's happening and then takes a totally unexpected turn. Like it, that's coming more about the, the role that it serves and the, and the way that it's pulled off than it is like being like a creative death. Yeah. Sort of the placement in the story and the ramifications versus, and he just shoots himself. Ta-da. Right. Yeah. That's not, that's not what you're extolling as a virtue. I totally get that. I mean, I think as far as surprise goes, like mine is like a six and that's like a nine. And I, I was, when I said it was a tough call, it was Larry Fessenden in session nine. That was the, the closest for me because that's just so brutal. It's just so hard to watch. I think we have some good choices there. Um, but, uh, the, the trophy goes to Martin Freeman in ghost stories. Worst on screen kill is the next logical choice. And, uh, let's go ahead and hand out some hardware there. Julie Harris in the haunting leads off our nominees where she just kind of goes upside down in the car at the end. Scatman Crothers getting axed in the shining Bruce Greenwood in below his on sub suicide. Something falls on Pamela Franklin in hell. House. <laughs> I don't even remember that one. What was that? Obviously my memory was a little sketchy too, but no, I mean, some large object falls on it's her. A, it's a chand- it's a chandelier, right? Right. We yeah, talked we yeah. talked we talked about the fact that the house is full of chandeliers and they're just constantly falling. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Major character. Yeah, that's that's her demise. Uh, okay. So I'll go first this time. I'm going with Bruce Greenwood in below. There's just nothing clever or satisfying about this death. And personally, even though I have not reviewed the the footage i would swear he shoots himself in the head twice which is impossible (laughs) (laughs) in any event the movie is going for this quasi christ-like slow-mo melodrama when he does it as though maybe we should be mourning him in some way and it just has to be one of the lamer most misguidedly ambiguous villain send-offs in horror certainly in this tournament. And while my memory might be fuzzy of, of the, the death, I, I certainly know that it, it only evokes groans for me. So that's why it's my choice. Vic, what's, what are your thoughts and your rebuttal? <laughs> I know that is, that is also my choice. It uh-huh. is. And, and uh, this is, I think maybe the best pun of the whole night. It sinks the whole movie. <laughs> There's been some good puns tonight, Vic. There's been some good puns. No, Unintentional I, ones, this, even. In this subgenre, it's the worst ah, kill. Um, subgenre. It, uh, no, it, it, 
there's there are there's so much that I love about that film and that I watch it over and over again. And there's a reason that I put it on fall asleep too, because there's a good chance I'm going to fall asleep before I have to watch that scene again. Uh, although it is it is it is <clears throat> it's buoyed somewhat by uh, <laughs> oh, God. old, old McElhenney's body hanging <laughs> from the radio tower above him. But yes, uh, yeah. No, it, 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 it has the worst effect on the movie that preceded it uh, and really probably knocked it out of the competition. I believe it may have. All right, Rich, uh, first off, as far as the puns go, make the bad man stop. And I'm talking about Vic. <laughs> <laughs> but also give us your choice. <laughs> Vic, it pains me to hear you torpedo your own favorite. Oh, <laughs> Oh, if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I'm gonna throw a vote in for Julie Harris in the haunting. I'm glad you reminded me of this this kill. Like, talk about a movie where I recall being on board, like pretty strongly early on, and I felt like the movie just gradually wore me down until I felt nothing at the end of it for any of its characters, complete with this like wet fart of an ending. That this uh, that the car crash was. You're right. That thing was just a a lot of nothing and completely inconsequential to the actual like finale of the film. So yeah, that just had nothing going for it. But nothing nothing against you guys. Vote for Bruce Greenwood below. I'm I'm down with you on that. I'd actually say Scatman Carruthers for all the the flack it gets. Sort of has a brutality to it that it can be it can be mocked. You know. In, in a way, and it has been, like, over and over again. And, you know, say what you will, like, there's still something indelible about um, something that can be sort of mocked to that degree. So I think it has has some sort of, some umph to it. Well, it's also, it's very cold. And, I mean, it is a total letdown for those of us hoping for the cavalry to come in. And it, the movie is kind of saying, no, they're fucked. Yeah. And, I mean, there there is a brutality to that. Uh, you just think Danny could have said something, sent him some shining message. It was like, when you come in, don't just shout hello a bunch of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right. I am cracking a Miller Lite, which means I am downshifting hard <laughs> for the stretch run. <laughs> But that uh, takes us to another premium category, one of the biggies, scariest moment. Ooh. Yes. I'd say that is, this, is, this is a more important award for this subgenre than Best Kill. Mm-hmm. No doubt. No doubt. Scariest moment is where these films live. And we've got some strong contenders. Nominees are... The Woman in the Bathtub in The Shining. The Woman in the Shower in Terrified. Dr. Albrecht's corpse running at the car in Terrified. Alice sees her own corpse in Lake Mungo. The oscillating fan scene in Paranormal Activity 3. Julie Harris and Claire Bloom with the ghost outside their door in The Haunting. The Bride Ghost closes in on Sarah Paxton at the end of The Innkeepers. And 
the bathroom mirror face peeling scene in Poltergeist. Strong stuff. Let's start with Vic on this one. Scariest moment, Vikram Wheat, go. I mean, I think you're really right that this is the defining award in a lot of ways for this genre. These are the scenes that really stick with you. This is what really you come away with the movie going, holy shit. And these are a lot of really good scenes. And I think, I mean, there's there's more that, that you could you yeah. could put on this movie. I mean, hell, there's 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 two or three more from Terrified that yeah. you could put in here. No doubt. So my answer came to me pretty quickly in looking at this. In spite of how great all these scenes are, I actually, the one that, that I had forgotten, my, my dark horse is the the bride goes closing in on Sarah Paxson and the innkeepers. That really scared the shit out of me. Certainly the first time I watched it and held up on subsequent viewings. I am going with Alice sees her own corpse in Lake Mungo. That was the certainly the first time I watched it. That was a scene that froze me to my couch and had all of my all of my skin in goose flesh and on subsequent viewings, you know, we've watched it three times probably for the podcast now. There was at least once when I very consciously looked away. Like I just needed a break from that moment. Lake Mungo builds to that moment. It is the payoff. That is the 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 cumulative moment of all the eeriness and tension for a movie that doesn't have a lot of real genuine scares. It has one scare and that one scare has to work and it really works. And it also the, the just the, the miasma around it, the feeling that it leaves you with is very different from the others because you really are left not even completely sure of what it means or what it's saying about the world, or what it's saying about the universe. So you have that visceral impact, but what's left, the, 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 the vague feeling that's left, is really powerful. Well said, Vic. Well said. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the high points of, of the entire genre, no doubt about it. Rich, I, I would suspect you might be on the same page. Am I right? Am I wrong? I am 100% on the same page. That is a, a, a clear, like, runaway here. I mean, Vic, you, you put it very well. I I feel like that, that thing that you're talking about where you want to look away is that it is a incredibly delicate balance of both, like, the surreal and the, and the all-too-real. It feels like an otherworldly thing that you can easily imagine happening to yourself. And it's relatable. It somehow manages to feel fresh and original despite the fact that you're basically experiencing it through a flip phone. And it's just a moment that is like it's it's the stark simplicity of being confronted with mortality in the most like vulnerable point in this character's life, it just feels so relatable. And it's one of those things that I'm with you. Like every time we even talk about it, I still get, get chills about it. 
and I, I uh, all the, I think mean, this is a incredibly robust category. Like, I don't think there's anything in here that I would call weak. Like these are like as I read like each entry in here, I was like, yep, yep, yep. Uh, like that, that was these were all great, and I could break down for you why. But none of them elicit that just involuntary reaction um, as that moment from Lake Mungo. Yeah, it's kind of big and esoteric and psychological, but at the same time, it's very visceral and grotesque. And part of the horrifying impact is just that, you know, the the biological reality of a waterlogged corpse and somehow juxtaposing that with someone's, if not soul, their consciousness and their feelings and their desires and their fears and their dreams and all of that. And just sort of having those two things collide face to face. It's a pretty powerful and horrific reminder of our, our organic nature and the tenuous span of life that we have on this planet. It's, it's heady stuff. It's very powerful. And I think that you guys, you know, objectively, I would completely agree with you. But as we've discussed on this pod from the beginning, there's also the subjective and the personal component of, of the process. And I happen to have strong underlying feelings that go back, you know, a lot longer than my relationship with Lake Mungo. And that's why it's got to be the woman in the bathtub and the shining for me. I'm curious in what you think makes a distinction between being like a, a better scene versus like a scariest moment, a better, like scary moment. Uh, I mean, I think when we get to best scene, I'll be better able to explain that because I think that my criteria for best scene have more to do with filmmaking technique and just how impressed I am with the craft and the impact of a scene almost regardless of subgenre, let alone how scary it is. So I'm, I'm, I'm judging on how much did it scare me. And so that's why this one, there, nothing else could could compare and I'll, I'll tell you why. And I've said this before I've given the anecdote, but I'll preface it by saying it's not as scary as it used to be. And pound for pound, I don't think it's the scariest nominee in the category for me anymore. Might actually even be near the bottom of these of these scenes, but <laughs> I don't care if a if a movie scene gave me a psychological complex and an OCD, it's winning the fucking category. <laughs> and I'm talking about Woman in the Bathtub. I've said on the in the on this podcast in the past, it traumatized me to an unbelievable degree as a kid. And I couldn't even watch the guy peeling his face off in Poltergeist until I was into my teens. But the combination of this scene's cackling witch corpse being naked and having tricked Jack and the audience elevates the horror of her pursuing him out of that room, rotting and laughing to the level of genius for me, especially when you begin the scene with a setting like the bathtub. And I want to put my finger on something here. We're not in the second floor hallway of a dilapidated mansion when this happens. It's not something that we can't relate to kind of back to what you guys were saying 
Rich especially, about it being grounded or relatable in Lake Mungo. Well, going into a bathroom is grounded and relatable. We're in an innocuous hotel bathroom here. Your bathroom at home, wherever you live, probably has a bathtub. It's not like we're instilling a fear where you have to go into the water a la Jaws. You have to go swimming or something, which is pretty relatable. But everybody, you better believe, everybody has to walk into a room with a bathtub in it. So to create a fear or a trauma that this woman might be in the bathtub when you walk into the room. I can't get past that because yes, it deeply ingrained in me the fear that one day I would walk into a bathroom and I would see that shape behind the curtain or the door or whatever, or the door or the curtain would slide open and she would be in there with me. I can't put a price tag on that as far as the value of it in, in, in terms of terror and trauma. It just, it it scared me very, very deeply and we could do 15 seasons of this show and look at every possible subgenre of horror. I'm never going to give you a personal anecdote like the fact that for 10 years after seeing this movie, I couldn't walk into a bathroom without whispering the mantra that got shortened, of course, but beginning with she's not going to be here today or the next day or the next day or the next day. So that's just, it's personal and singular. And so that's why I got to go with it. Yeah. I mean, I'd say you're not alone while it didn't have the same impact on me. Although I did not see this movie at the same age that you did, you know, there's a reason why they returned to it uh, in Dr. Sleep as the, as the thing that Mm -hmm. can like follow Danny. You know, I, I think that it's definitely something that stuck with people. So uh, I'm not going to devalue your, your feelings this time. Oh, thanks, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> and real quick, before we throw it to Vic, I do want to say, like, maybe we should have given Dr. Sleep a poke in this whole process. I pretty much nixed it. I don't think anyone else was that excited about it. But, you know, I, I'm ruling. I'm not ruling out that watching that movie again, it's fucking Mike Flanagan, for God's sake. I mean, how many Mike Flanagan movies are in this tournament? That could be a miss. That could be something we later say, eh, maybe maybe that should have been in the tournament. I'm, I just want to I mean, mention that. There's a solid argument that that is not a Haunted House movie. Yeah, yeah. that's That, w- that would be another argument entirely. You're right. Yeah, I think I think it could come up later on in the some some other subgenre. Although that's one that's going to be difficult to classify. So it is. Yeah. So it's going to be a curious discussion to have too. Mostly like a vampire film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say it's a different different form of vampire, but yeah, mostly. The my thoughts on this, John, and I'm I'm kicking myself for not thinking of of something that should have been included in here is that I was also quite traumatized by The Shining as a kid with something that stuck with me for a long, long time. But it was the twins in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And that really should have been, and I, I you know, I, we sort of went over this and, and tried to work out what the best things were. John sort of came up with the template and then we chimed in with our, with our ideas. And I can't believe I didn't mention that because in a weird inversion of what you were talking about, I used to have this idea that when I was in the shower, I would open the shower curtain and the twins would be in uh, the bathroom. Wow. 
Uh, and that stuck with me for a long time. And so that for a long time, I would have said that was the scariest scene I've ever seen. But I do think, as you said, it's one of those ones that's diminished, not so much with time, but with familiarity. That I've just seen the movie so many times that that, that impact is worn off. And that's it's almost a testament to the film, right? Because I've just gone back to it over and over and over again. You know, it's like a drug. Like you want that shot of adrenaline you get when it really gets under your skin and really, really creeps you out. And so I in in retrospect, I would say that I could certainly make a case for that based on on sort of what you're talking about, that it it really messed me up. It really stuck with me as a kid. But for right now and today, it's it's like Mungo. But that's, you know, that's six of one half a dozen of the other. Yeah, I mean, it, whether you go with residual effects or right now effects are just kind of a judgment call based on how you want to apply your criteria. I just can't run away from the fact that that is one of the most impactful movie scenes I've ever witnessed in my life. So I have to pay homage to it. Okay. The best scene, period. And this is, yeah, not necessarily scary because we just did that. But the best scene by whatever standard you want to bring to it in any of these films as a set piece, as just the most memorable, well-executed, impressive bravura, however you want to look at it. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and parse through these nominees. The bathtub scene in What Lies Beneath. The ghost crawls into the bedroom in Tale of Two Sisters. Dr. Kassara's last stand in Devil's Backbone. The Burying the Monster Lady montage in House. Kevin Bacon digging in the backyard to paint it black in Stir of Echoes. Learning what happened to the little boy in The Orphanage. The Pale Man haunts Walter in Terrified. Annie escapes the house in The Pact. And Daniel Radcliffe's first night in The Woman in Black. A lot of strong ones there. Um, why don't you lead us off, Vic? Ooh, this is a doozy. And I do like, I actually like distinguishing best scene from scariest moment. Because I do feel like scariest moment is a, a much smaller snippet yep. of time. And it's measured by the, this one very clear sort of measuring stick. Best scene is a little more complicated than that. I feel like there there are scenes that last longer. I one of the scenes that I thought about and and didn't really decided not to include, but the um, the scavenger hunt in the orphanage is another scene that I think would would kind of fit here. I think the scene when when we find out what happened to uh, to her son is really the the more powerful scene. So I think that's the right one to go with. But again, a scene that's not really scary at all when you talk about that scavenger hunt, but it's a really well-done scene. And so I think that there are some distinguishing characteristics to this category that make it really fun. The two that I'm really stuck on are Annie Escapes the House in the Pact and Daniel Radcliffe's First Night in The Woman in Black, largely because uh, Daniel Radcliffe's First Night especially, I love that it's dialogue-free. I love that 
it goes on for so long and the scares never let up. There is no breathing room anywhere in that scene. But I think I'm going to go with Annie Escapes the House and the Pact. I just, every time that she runs back in and just gets flung against the wall by this sort of invisible force and all the emotions and history that are tied into her having to go back in to get her sister's kid. It's a, it, boy, it's a, it's just a hell of a scene that kicks off that movie. I don't know guys. There were just, there were a lot of good movies in this in a lot of really good scenes. It's really hard to pick. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to pick that, but you could ask me tomorrow and I might go with something else. And it might not even be again, even the, the, the woman in black scene. I, I could go with, Cesar's last stand in the devil's backbone. Even this, the ghost crawling into the bedroom in the tale of two sisters is is terrifying and really well done. Rich, lots of lots to unpack there. Are you as um, ambivalent about it as Vic is, or do you have like one clear winner? Uh, no, I'm definitely as ambivalent as Vic. I, I this is the kind of thing where I I feel like I could could uh, could just sit here offering up like write in candidates for this, but I'm, I'm just going to work within the, the confines of, of our nominees because they are strong. I actually think it's interesting because I, I would not say that these are quite as like runaway hits as like the scariest moments are, which is, which is saying something for a subgenre that I think is, is a little more dramatic than the yeah. other subgenres that you, that you encounter in horror. So I would expect some more like dramatically layered scenes, but I, and I don't I don't mean that as a, a knock against these. Like these 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 are good. So uh, I see your point, though. Yeah, like this is the most sort of classy of the genres of horror, right? Probably. I mean, with the possible exception of really elevated true crimey Silence of the Lambs, wherever you would put that. But like so, like I mean, Vic's pick. Like I, I really like that scene where where Annie escapes the the house. I think it's like it's a scene that's that's largely thriving on like its energy, um, which it captures really well with like a very well timed complication um, that sort of like turns the the scene on its on its head. I I do love the moment where you feel that release of she's escaped the evil only to have her suddenly confronted with the fact that she has to go back in again and, and confront the evil in order to, to save the kid. Um, and it's got the flying knife too, doesn't it? Like that's some it's got great the flying stuff. Knife. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I love the, the knife planted in the, in the wall. That's mm-hmm. the, that will come back to haunt you later. I mean, it's, there's a lot of work going on in, in that, that particular scene. And so it's, it's, it's thoughtful. Um, I also really love burying the monster lady in house. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, and maybe one that's the uh, that's a little more admirable for like the the nostalgia that conjures up. Um, yeah. it's a it, montage for God's sake. It's a musical montage. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so again, like so in terms of like like how is doing, like as you point out, like it's sort of one of a kind and it's in its tone um, mm-hmm. and like what it's trying to accomplish. Um, I'm going to go with Doctor Cesares' last stand in Devil's Backbone. I, I think if you're talking about a dramatic weight and and character and and plot and like this this movie maybe was the most ambitious in terms of 
weaving something that was greater than the sum of its parts in terms of a, a horror film. And I think that, that, that scene with, you know, with Cesaris, and I, I think that you're talking about sort of the whole, that whole kind of final act with him, not only the time that he's alive, but also the time when he's, when he's dead and, and released the kids from the room. You know, we spent a lot of time trying to, to piece apart what, what made that so interesting. And it had so much to say about, about life after death and about ghosts and, um, you know, and about, about father figures and, and like that there was just, there was, there was so much happening in that. And it was also such a satisfying end for a, for a fairly complex character, uh, to begin with. Like it was, it was the most novelistic, I think of, of any of these scenes and, and it handled it pretty deftly. Um, so that's going to be my pick. Yeah, I absolutely love that scene. It's tragic. It's poignant. He's heroic, but he's he's lost, and you know the flies are buzzing around him. But you know he was steadfast, and it's a very sad end. But he he definitely has a sort of a redemption from that kind of literal impotency arc that he had been going through as a character. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fantastic and beautifully shot and amazing framing of him in that window with the gun and, you know, the desert outside and in this ruined, uh, part of the orphanage. It's great stuff. I'm going to go with the bathtub scene and what lies beneath. (laughs) Which, no, that's, that's a good call. That, that was my immediate reaction as well. All right, good, good. Because I, I know that's not the most popular uh, movie uh, tonight. But like the antenna kill in Below, the scene that I left this process with the most admiration for from a filmmaking standpoint is this one. I just put the pacing and the editing, the tension, the ingenious dynamics of the character's predicament on a bit of a pedestal. I think it's great filmmaking, a classic little set piece cost almost nothing to make. And just having the paralyzed Michelle Pfeiffer in this plight where she has to somehow save herself from drowning, uh, with very little even ability to move. I think it's the kind of scene that would have made, uh, Alfred Hitchcock proud. And I think that's kind of what they were going for. And I, I think they nailed it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It, it, every time I see that movie, and there will be no more time. <laughs> every, every time I see that movie, my I'm my instinct is that that movie started with that scene. Like someone had that thing scr- scribbled down in a journal somewhere, and was waiting totally. to like build was waiting to build a movie around it, and and then then that's what you get. Yeah, it is the standout scene. There's no doubt about it. And yeah, without that scene, I think I like the movie quite a bit less. But there's another scene in What Lies Beneath that is in our worst scene category. It is a strong contender. And of course, we are talking about the computer solitaire initials uh, that appear on an Apple Macintosh Quadra 630 as the ghost is trying to communicate with the current resident of the house. Also, the completely pointless and forgettable demon thing in the woods uh, subplot in 
or episode in Ghost Stories. The long scene searching for lost money in Amityville Horror. The classic dessert bonding involving Casper Van Dien in The Pact. <laughs> the immortal barista scene, brief as it is, in The Innkeepers. And the possessed Lily Taylor in The Conjuring. Wow, we've got some really weak scenes here. So this is going to be this is going to be a tussle, guys. Uh, um, <laughs> judging the scene on its own merit, independent of the film, or are we judging the theme, judging the scene within the context of the film in which it lies? I, or is it up to the? Is that, is that up to the? I would say it is up to in the eye of the beholder. But I mean, my gut is to tell you, like the most appallingly, memorably bad scene of these of these scenes would be my uh, north star on it. Why don't you lead us off uh, there, Rich? Like, what based on that? Where what does your gut take you? I mean, I can't let this go. The barista seeing the innkeepers is absolute trash. <laughs> <laughs> you have been so like viscerally, profoundly offended by that scene from the very beginning. I'm glad that you, you saw that through line all the way to the end. <laughs> all right. Yeah, that, don't get me wrong. I have, I have definitely a runner up for the dessert bonding scene in the past, <laughs> which is, is really like in in just so many ways is a is a parallel scene for a sort of indie. I guess the the problem with the dessert bonding scene is that they're actually trying to tie it into like the character development of people. Whereas like at least at least they're trying. At least Clayface Casper and Dean is giving a shot. You know, he's trying he's trying real hard, Rich. Lena Dunham doesn't even know what movie she's in. <laughs> I, I tend to agree of the two scenes, the barista scene is the worst. Like it does the less less for its film. There's no doubt about that. Um you could excise that scene without blinking. Alright. Um I'll let Vic finish this category. I am gonna say mine. And this was not a slam dunk. It didn't even occur to me when I was first coming up with potential nominees, but Vic added it. Uh, and I'm glad he did because I'm going with Lily Taylor's possession in the conjuring. And for me, um, her exorcism more specifically, I did mention when we covered this film that I was embarrassed for this fine actor watching her play all of this stuff because it does not work. And it's not all of her fault by any means. I just don't buy any of it. And it seems awkward, forced, and unconvincing. It's cringy. So that's why I got to go with it. Yeah, that was an inspired choice, Vic. It, it, yeah, it, it, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> no, that's it. Uh, Rich, I do want to say the thing that I will say about the barista scene in The Innkeepers is that if you walked in to a coffee shop and Lena Dunham was your barista, that is probably what she would do. We're not voting on realism here. We're voting on, on like... Oh, no, no, no. I, I wish... That way, I want to be clear. That's not a defense. I'm not defending the scene. I'm just saying that's a, that's a fact that Lena Dunham would tell you about 
her failed engagement to a boyfriend who she doesn't love. She might uh, also be naked. She might also be <laughs> naked, which would be which would also be worse. Anyways, no, sorry, Lena Dunham, very talented. So I I initially I flagged the computer solitaire initials in what lies beneath because of course I hate what lies beneath, but. I have a writing candidate that came to me as we were as we were having the previous conversation, and it is my hands down winner. It is the mini Sam Jackson inside the hotel refrigerator in fourteen oh eight. Sorry, I do not recall that. I, I have no memory of this whatsoever, which makes it the perfect choice. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the silliest, most ridiculous thing in what is really purporting to be a serious horror film at some point in the movie towards the end uh, uh, John Cusack opens the, the, the little mini hotel refrigerator mm-hmm. and Samuel Jackson is in there oh, God you know four mm-hmm. inches high and mm-hmm. they have a conversation I don't even remember the content of the conversation but I just remember being like what the what the fuck what <laughs> really <laughs> yeah that's so again oh. I, I had no hope of winning the Toby because uh, I did not include it, but I, it's a it's a write in, and it's awful. Well worth inclusion. Thank you, thank you, Vic. All right, now we are really in the final. Like the prestige categories are reaching an apex because what is bigger than best ending? I challenge you. Come on, best ending. You got to stick the landing, folks. And here are. Some films that do that. Nominees are Paranormal Activity 3. Say what you want about it. It's got a great ending. The Shining, Session 9, Oculus, and Poltergeist. Okay, I will lead this one off. I am going to say the winner is Oculus. No easy task, this category, but the ending of Oculus, I feel wrapped things up with the most punch-to-the-gut power and symmetry. Just clear symmetry. This movie's ending feels like the perfect notes to close its symphony on. And like a haunted house movie should, it haunts me after the credits roll. For me, a lot of these movies, including Mike Flanagan's Ouija Origin of Evil, flub the ending somehow, but Oculus hits every note like a virtuoso. It's the right ending for that movie in every way. Vic, what do you think? I love the ending of Oculus, and it is a a very close second to my first pick. But, John, a little bit like your thing about The Shining, my pick for best ending is uh, Session 9. Nice. Oh, yeah. The voiceover by Simon fucked me up like it really got under my skin it really made me uncomfortable uh, in a way that very few movies have i think the movie leading up to it was was flawed uh still good again these are all good movies they're not all good movies but they're mostly all good movies but uh uh that last bit and especially you know i mean we and we've joked about it but i live in the weak and the wounded doc like that shit that shit echoes out from that movie into my life at times that I don't want it to. That's a that's a really, really scary, profound ending to me. 
Well, we have the same one and two, and I think in a few moments here, you're going to see me flip-flop what just happened. So, yeah, dude, we are on the same page. Rich, where do you come in on this? I'm going to say, like, so I I do agree that the end of Session 9 is chilling. I also love the end of uh, Poltergeist, although although more for the, the kind of the sort of twist ending that gets thrown in. At the, uh, twist is the wrong word. But the little like twist of the knife that happens at the very end of it with the pushing of the TV out on the on the balcony. But I'm with you, John. Like I wouldn't have picked Oculus as the the best ending, even though I had seen it prior to this competition. Wouldn't have been a movie that stood out to me as best ending. I actually felt like it was pretty muddy the first time I saw it, and I was confused. But for some reason, the repeated viewings have really made me realize how dialed in it is. And it just feels like a a masterclass in pulling all of your plot points together and at the same time pulling no punches in terms of a horror movie. It is bleak and dark and true to its characters and true to its story and true to its antagonist. And it makes it feel like all roads had been leading to this path all along. I loved it, and I still like it's. And it feels like it feels heartbreaking the way that they they tie the the past and the present together in, in this way that feels like this tragic ending was once hopeful, and yet the tragedy of it was was inevitable, and, and they were always heading towards this this finality. And uh, and I love the this, I still love these sort of nonsensical ravings of like. It wasn't me. It was the mirror. Like, it's like, it's so classic horror, but in a way where it doesn't feel outrageous or, or, or ridiculous. Very effective. Yeah. I, I think that might be, that's exactly what I want from a horror movie ending. And if we were to somehow do cross genre comparisons, like let's say we did another five seasons crossing all these different flavors of horror and it's just like, okay, well, what's the best ending? Like, I think that one for me would always be in the competition. Um, I think it's, it's just a tremendous ending. And I agree. It didn't hit me as hard the first time. It's really, as I've come to sit with it and watch the film for this endeavor more than once that I realize how perfect it truly is. So, Yeah. Glad we're on the same page there, but you know, I could, I'm not going to take anything away from session nine. That's for damn sure. Absolutely love the ending of that. Okay. Well, um, every coin coin, every coin has two sides. And if there's a best ending, that means there must be a worst ending. Our nominees for worst ending are 1408, obviously Amityville horror below the orphanage specifically the shots of the happy ghost family in Ouija origin of evil and the woman in black. So yeah, some heavy hitters here when it comes to shitty endings, lots of underwhelming stuff here, guys, this is going to be a tough one. Uh, (laughs) Rich kick it off, man. What do you think? I want to go with the with the dark horse in this category, pun intended. Uh, the woman in the the woman in black to me was the 
water like at least like the orphanage was going for it you know like may you say what you will that like it didn't work and i and i agree that it on the whole it did not really work but at least it was trying like i feel like the whole movie was geared towards that ending whereas the woman in black just felt like they they had no idea what else to do with it it just felt half-hearted and unmotivated, and I didn't care about Daniel Radcliffe's character anyways, and I completely lost touch with the fact that his wife was even a, a character in the movie, and, you know, then he, like, he literally ends up in, like, a the sunlit version of the, the train station at the end, like, I, I mean, I don't know, what do you say about it? It's a, like, it's, it's the worst end, like, it, it's the worst ending, like, it left me feeling nothing. The whole wife and kid thing was really tacked on, yeah, in that film. Vic? The runner-up is James Brolin going back for the dog in the Amityville Horror. I just find that atrocious. Mm -hmm. But the winner, and and Rich, you'll appreciate this because it goes back to what you said. The winner is 1408 because I don't remember how it ended. (laughs) And that, that that seems like a bad sign. Yes. For a movie that I've seen more than once, and I don't remember. I have no idea. I think it had something to do with John Cusack's daughter, but I, I, I don't know. 1408 is like the, the Plan 9 from outer space that somehow infiltrated our competition. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, I can only assume it had the worst ending. It's like we have 32 films, the best of the best, and here's 1408 standing there. <laughs> Like, you know, among that group of films. It's unbelievable. And I blame you, Vikram. I blame you. Should. It is my fault. I assume <laughs> total responsibility. I, I feel like we can e- probably easily go back and find something that we debated in those first episodes that was that was better than 1408 that did not make it into the competition. I mean, yeah. without question, it's, it is kind of unreal. But But here we are. And I mean, we could have vetoed it. I didn't know just how bad it was, so let's just we'll we'll leave it none, there. None of us did, clearly. Yeah, yeah. None of us knew, none of us knew, and we're sorry. <laughs> we apologize to everyone that had to listen to that uh when we talked about that movie. But maybe it was a fun conversation. I don't know. It was a year ago. In any event, here we are. My vote for worst ending. Big surprise. The orphanage. <laughs> I just have to say, my criteria is the ending of the movie took the whole Enterprise down from a B-plus at worst, depending on how you end the film, to a shaky C is my final analysis of the movie. And that's hard to do. That's hard for an ending to do. It's the kind of ending that knowingly and willfully invalidates everything that comes before it. And we don't have time right now, but Rich, I'm I'm definitely contradicting what you said about the movie building inexorably to that ending. That's not the way I see it. I, I thought that it was playing games with the audience and leaving its shamefully manipulated viewers in a palatable emotional place versus, you know, a much more true and authentic place that they could have left us. So yeah, obviously it's the orphanage for me because I've been railing against it the whole time. So, okay. I will say you, you'd earn a half grade back if you lost the shot of the husband smiling in yes. the room. I, I agree. Like that the husband's like reaction when he finds that is execrable. It's not, not nonsensical. Yeah. It's so bad. It is so bad. Okay. 
the scariest house is uh, is unique to the haunted house genre. We're not going to be applying that to any other set or subset of films, but it's very important, obviously, in a haunted house film. And obviously the criteria is loose because not all of these are quote-unquote houses per se, but you get the idea. So the scariest house award goes to either The Shining, The Pact, Legend of Hell House, Session 9, Our Point, The Haunting, or The Changeling. Rich, what do you think? The Shining is an iconic haunted house, and I feel like the flip side of that would be my pick, which is The Pact. That house is scary as shit. It's super tiny and compact. It feels incredibly contemporary in the sense that it's a it's a very real house that someone lives into today. The geography of it and the way that it continues to to open up and reveal new spaces um, is a different kind of, of scare factor that it introduces. And that the claustrophobia, this is the that's the house that you know we've 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 had a couple of house moves uh, on this. Actually, we've had three total house moves. Um, for the for the three of us on this series, just in the time we've done this, yeah. and I feel like every time we move houses, that's the movie that we reference. It making it the most relatable standard of a modern urban haunted house, um, and and the secret chambers of it are something that are easy to think of late at night when you walk into a hallway and the lights are dim. And you wonder if maybe, just maybe, there's something on the other side of that wall that you never thought to look for. Um, and someone's been hiding there the entire time. Jesus Christ, Rich. You know I have to walk across my fucking dark courtyard at uh... – <laughs> Yeah, specifically talking about Vic's home. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a huge achievement to make that innocuous little house in San Pedro or wherever it's supposed to be seem – fraught with menace but that movie absolutely does and that's that's a lot harder than making an abandoned uh, mental institution seem scary all right we'll let vic finish this one out i'm gonna say the shining um you know though i i feel chastened by by rich's comments but the way that i approached this was where would i be most terrified to be teleported to right now realize where I was and what I was in for. What would that be of these categories, these nominees? And I can't think of many places I'd be more deliriously petrified to find myself in rather than the Overlook Hotel in the middle of winter. It's the quintessence of ghostly evil for me. Every inch of that place is terrifying in its patient, malevolent insanity. This is the Haunted House movie you could have titled Insidious and nailed it. From room 237 to those hallways and the hedge maze and the glimpsed depravities through doorways, it's just the most fully realized Haunted House. And yes, I know it's a hotel out there. So that, I got to go with it. It's iconic. Vic, weigh in. 
John, that's a that's a compelling case. And I think that this category really does come down basically to the the shining and the pact. I mean, I think, yeah, like you said, session nine abandoned mental asylum is going to be scary. I think the the abandoned plantation in our point is scary, just sort of visually, even if, as, as Rich pointed out when we were talking about it, the house itself doesn't play much of a role in it. I also went with the pact. I have, I have exactly the same reaction. John, I can't imagine why you're not more scared to be magically transported to San Pedro. (laughs) I would love to live in San Pedro, to be honest. (laughs) But no, it's, I, there, there is just something about the production design in that movie that is fucking, it's just weird. It's insidious. The wallpaper, the wallpaper is insidious. Yeah. Now, granted, the carpet is insidious at the Overlook, so it's you know it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. But yeah, those are those are really close. But I did go with the pack. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah i I think that that place is special, and it's it does haunt me. So I think I will gladly hand over the the hardware to the pact now. This is a big one, guys. Best antagonist. This is just about... This is the second to last award of the night. Because you can't have horror without a great antagonist. Super, super important. They're the straw that stirs the drink. Here we are with nominees. Simon in Session 9. The Woman in the Bathtub in The Shining. The Pale Man in Terrified. The Bride in The Innkeepers. Charles Barlow in The Pact. The Jinn in Under the Shadow. The Lasser Glass in Oculus. And Richard Maul's character in House. (laughs) (laughs) Who I should remember that character's name, but uh, I don't have it right now. The Vietnam Buddy. Yes. Who's awesome. Okay. I'll go first this time and then throw it to Vic and Rich will take us home on this one. I'm going with, I'm not even going to say, I'll I'll lead up to it. I pretty much anointed the Lasser glass in our Oculus deep dive, but you know, upon consideration, I'm changing my vote and here's why. Say what you want about the insidious nature of that mirror doesn't really have a visible voice or personality that we get. It's a mimic. And well, a mirror. It mirrors what people are doing on the other side of the glass. It stays in the background. It's a great antagonist. But in my view, it stays behind the curtain. We don't ever meet Oz the Great and Powerful of Oculus. Not really. So I gotta go with Simon in Session 9. Simon has a voice. Oh, does he ever have a voice? And we get a sense of the glee he takes in pulling the same kinds of strings that the Lasser Glass does. He gets people to do things, terrible things. But Simon's anarchic, unhinged malevolence comes through loud and clear. Simon is not just evil and insane. I find the shreds of humanity in Simon 
perfectly fused with his demonic aspects. It creates a villain that is both identifiable as us and disturbingly other. It's one hell of a cocktail. Well, I do love a good cocktail. So. <laughs> no, I you were you were absolutely right when you said that you and I were going to flip flop on the best ending, and uh, that that was that was going to switch. Yep. Coming forward, this is it, and you're absolutely right because Simon is very much my my number two. He's really close to to the top spot, but I went with the Lasser glass, and the reason that I did is that. In this process and through our, our viewings and discussions, I have really come to appreciate how insidious it really is. And it really comes down to it's the moment when they're going to go get a cup of coffee and leave and, and uh, Brendan Thwaites has sort of talked her out of her whole plan and that's when they see that the mirrors manipulated them into turning the cameras, and you realize that the glass doesn't want them to leave. It's only when you appreciate, when you understand that, which I didn't get, again, through the first two viewings, but only when you understand that do you understand the mirror was never afraid of them, that it's just feeding off them. It's just building up to that terrible ending, which, again, John, I, you can't argue with that for best ending, just like you can't argue with Session 9, but the the way that that mirror has revealed its character to me over the viewings is astonishing and terrifying and horrifying. I I, I went with the lesser glass. We're splitting hairs, you know. We're right there. Yep. Rich, do you have a radically different opinion? Where do you come in? Rich is going with the ex-wife in house. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, What's your role in, in house is a bold choice. <laughs> you know, I'm just gonna. I, I went with sort of a knee jerk reaction on this one. The pale man and terrified is not a particularly uh, deep or storied or, or mythologized figure. If anything, the fact that that he seems so right out of, like sort of like right out of a, a horror cliche, is, is the thing that that makes him so indelible. Is that he's he's nothing more than a tall, slender, pale man whose motives are are mysterious, and yet the way that he lurks about, the way that he takes his time with the with the characters, and not to be confused with another film, how insidious he is to the house, the way that he's both under the bed and he's not. He's in the living room and he's not. He's in the armoire, but he's not. He's always lurking somewhere behind you. And he is that nameless blank slate of evil that we, I think, associate with like the most base levels of, of horror. So I don't know. He made a real impression. Like he really made that film in, in a movie that, that had a, had a pretty decent handful of, of memorable, horrific characters. Uh, he's still the, the literal uh, poster boy um, for that mm-hmm. movie because he, he, he captures what made that movie special was just getting straight down to the things that go bump in the night and the things that keep you awake 
and that you think might be in the corner of your room. Um, just so well executed, such like pure sort of unabashed horror fan service. No, I love it. He's a very indelible character and a very worthy nominee. A little bit surprising for you to pick him, but at the same time, he he is a an underrated character that I think over time will will have will become more iconic because he's great. It's, it's the kind of thing where like you could see like if they did another sequ- if they do you know if the sequel ever gets made to that film. And they attempt to like dive into the mythology. You could you could absolutely see it completely ruining it. Yes, yeah. You know, like the, the facelessness of of him is is what makes him so effective. He's actually this this just dawned on me, but he is the like the supernatural mirror version of Barlow from the Pact. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like the, he's he's very much like very much evokes the the, the guy in the Pact. Yeah, he's just like the amped up version of Barlow. He's, yeah. He's he's Barlow as reflected by the lesser glass. Oh, <laughs> nice Vic. <laughs> All That's right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do this one quickly because we're about to name the winner of the fucking tournament, but best antagonist must be followed by worst antagonist because that's how we roll, and we do have some juicy options here. Jacinto in The Devil's Backbone, Captain Winter's Ghost in Below, Kevin Dunn in Stir of Echoes, Jody in The Amityville Horror, Harrison Ford in What Lies Beneath, and The Sun in The Others. Thank you, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> I will go last. Uh, Rich, lead us off. <laughs> This is no offense to the actor who I who I actually really like and I think did a pretty good job in this, but I feel like when you're talking about the worst of anything, that the greatest offense is just leaving you with a complete sense of apathy. And for that reason, I'm going with Kevin Dunn in Stir of Echoes. Um, yeah, and I'll just yeah. leave it at this, is that uh, as his wife says, uh, he'd stick it in a bowl of soup if it was warm enough. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well said, Vic. Yeah, I, we we literally just watched Kevin Dunn in uh, Hot Shots this weekend, and he was very funny. So I agree, not a shot at Kevin Dunn, but yeah, he's 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 not a good antagonist. I'm so sorry, Kevin Dunn. Um, it's a it's a it's a sweep. I hate to shit on an actor I like, and I absolutely love him in Veep. But are we serious about Kevin Dunn as the bad guy in Stir of Echoes? His character, Frank, has an accomplice, his son, I believe, but they both feel like forgettable culprits in a Law & Order episode. I can't believe a Haunted House movie is built around this guy. I realize it's a whodunit, no pun intended. Uh, Actually, I did intend that one. Um, But he has to seem unthreatening for the reveal to be a surprise. I get it, but nothing is more TV episode than that. It's so lame. Okay, here we go, guys. Best picture. The greatest haunted house movie of all time. Which of the final four will take home the title? The Shining, Terrified, Lake Mungo, 
or Oculus. Okay. If you guys want to say how you had the final four playing out, you can you can do that. Let's let's start with Vic here. I so I have spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I can break it down in excruciating detail that should probably take a good thirty to forty five minutes. That's fair. So everybody get a beer, settle in. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um but I have spent a lot of time thinking about this. And one of the things that has really leapt out at me as we've gone through this process, and I think that it's something that all of us have really grappled with, is figuring out what the balance is in a horror film. And I think you can say this about any subgenre, but in a horror film between is it scary as shit, is it thematically relevant, are the characters relatable and involving do i care about what's happening to these people now just to be clear because i don't want john to yell at me these there's no wrong answer in these four movies right like these are four great great movies and so i it's you know you have to figure out what your criteria is for making this decision and that was the thing that kept coming up over and over again as we went through this for me was that there were movies that were maybe really scary or had really scary scenes, but I wasn't wrapped up in these the, – the other elements that I need to make those scenes really pop, right? If it's not structurally sound, if it's not – if the, if the, the characters aren't, don't feel real or motivated to me. And so when I looked at these four films through that lens, what I find is that Lake Mungo – which I love is geared much more towards the characters and the themes and the ideas and doesn't have the emphasis on the scares, right? It has one really good scare and a lot of very creepy scenes and a lot of tone and it's, it's unsettling, but as a horror film, it really only has one payoff. Even if that payoff works, I feel like you need more than that. On the flip side of it, I feel like Terrified is scary as shit, but the character stuff is lacking, and you can make up for that in other ways, but the movie really stalls for me in the second act. The narrative doesn't move, and so that one sort of – that sort of pushed that out of it too, and so then I'm left with The Shining and Oculus, which are very similar stories. And what I'm drawn to in the in the comparison of these two films is that one of them feels very cold and distant in terms of the characters. And in one of them, each time I watch it, I feel more and more sympathy towards the characters. And that is why I am voting for Oculus as the best uh, Haunted House film of all time. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. But I can't argue with you. That's I was I was almost there. But um I went with we'll let Rich will have the last word. I am going with the shining. I may be alone on this and I flirted seriously with other suitors, most specifically Oculus. But at the end of the night, I'm going home with my sweetheart, my first love. Sure, we're past the honeymoon phase, let alone animal attraction. 
But even as our, our time together feels as familiar as an old shoe, not truly exciting anymore, I am still endlessly fascinated with and attached to The Shining. I'm sorry, Rich. For me, this is still a labyrinth I love to wander in. The granddaddy of them all may not have the sex appeal of newer, sleeker films, but it's still a masterpiece. And as such, it will always be, for me, the quintessential haunted house movie. The only one I count among my very favorite movies of all time. Though all four of these movies have become dear to me and are somewhere pretty high on my list. And Vic, yeah, I gave serious thought to going with Oculus. That was number two. But no, I am I'm sticking with my first love, The Shining. Well, guys, it seems like we have a bit of a predicament. <laughs> I, I chose my movie based on the fact that nothing made the death of myself or those close to me feel more inevitable or more heartbreaking or more haunting. The house in Lake Mungo is a place of sadness where the light stays on leading the way home. The ghosts are lurking within the hearts and minds of those left behind and the dead are mourning a life that they were unable to live. And I agree that it may not add much in terms of scares, but it does market heavily in dread. It cares about its characters. You're right, Vic. But Lake Mungo is about real horror. It's about true horror that simply reveals the complexities and banalities of time, human connection, identity, and mortality. I'd still argue that it is a solid horror film, despite its, uh, its single scare, and now let's take away from the other movies. I have to say that like my appreciation of The, the Shining has improved over time. And uh, my appreciation of Oculus is also very high. And so I ask you, gentlemen, how do we, how do we rectify this? We've ended up with a, a three-way vote. And I want to say Terrified deserves better. Like, I fucking love Terrified. Like, I don't mean to say it should be like it's the obvious odd man out either. Well, I just want to say, Rich, if you wanted to go to fucking bed at 12.30, you could have just said Oculus, and we could all be sleeping. <laughs> I do. I really want to go to bed. <laughs> Good Lord. Um, I mean, do we Do we really – do we, we, we feel the obligation to hash this out? I mean, maybe maybe we should. We, we didn't spend a – no, no, look. Wait. Stop. We didn't spend a year on this to just throw our hands up in the air and go, well, yeah. <laughs> It's a deadlock jury. Deadlock jury. <laughs> Retrial. <laughs> Next season, we're going to get it right. <laughs> no. And um, I also, now wait, something else. I want to point out that I told you fuckers that we should do the bracket the way it's laid out so that we didn't have this happen. Um, All right. Because it was going to get it down to a, a pairing of two, right? Yes. Right. There, there would have been like, a way to to avoid this, yeah. You know, like the March Madness tournament. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I think everyone had a little bit of analysis fatigue at, at, at a certain point, including the listener. Yeah. But, all right. So, how can we... We have three different votes. 
I think that obviously terrified is the winner. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, look, we can we can just do this very quickly through that and say we've got Oculus versus Lake Mungo and The Shining versus Terrified. Yeah, and just the, re, and just re, and just repurpose that the, our, our comments through that. Well, I had The Shining knocking off Terrified and Oculus edging Lake Mungo. Vic, what did you have? The same. Oculus versus The Shining. That was right. So, Rich obviously had Lake Mungo knock off Oculus, and would The Shining beat Terrified? Yeah, I think I'd have to pick the it shining. Doesn't, right. Honestly, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because John and I would have both voted for the shining. Yeah. Okay. So, Rich, your opinion doesn't doesn't really count. You wasted the last year of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't need this podcast to tell me that. <laughs> However, you are very high up in the leadership of the Mungo Heads. <laughs> Joel Anderson will be pleased. Yes, yes. If he's still alive, Rich, you don't know. Somewhere in his bunker, he is smiling and nodding right now. (laughs) Oh God. Okay. I mean, yeah. I think we we just through frontier justice determined that The Shining is is the winner. Um, But wait, no, that's that's not true. Didn't we? Because Rich hasn't. If it was The Shining versus Oculus, Rich Rich hasn't voiced an opinion on that. Oh my God! Does that mean I get the tie-breaking vote? It does. <laughs> the prophecy Wait, gonna, is this is this the podcast? Are we going to broadcast this? <laughs> the the prophecy did say that the king of the Mungo heads would lead them. <laughs> I think this is the perfect way to end our podcast. <laughs> The excitement, the chaos, the confusion, the suspense. <laughs> all right. So, yeah, looking. Um, go ahead, Rich. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Right, so, all right. Like, like three drinks in, like off the cuff. Um, <laughs> here's what I'll say. I I have long been a critic of the coldness of the the shining. There is a clinical nature of Oculus that I also find similarly chilling in a character and an emotional sense. Um, while I think that the, the, those characters have been shaped for you to, to feel more, they've been more carefully articulated. Whereas in The Shining, there is an unpredictability, an unhinged nature that I think that is more in touch with the type of evil that we associate with this subgenre. And so I'd say for me, as much as it pains me to admit it, if I had to choose between the two films, I'd say that The Shining is probably a more powerful haunted house film than Oculus, despite Oculus being a more satisfying watch. Yes! Yes. No! <laughs> that's like a that, that's like a the, the cinematic equivalent of a of a technical knockout. Rich, exactly. I've never I've never I don't think I've ever said this to you, but you son of a bitch. <laughs> that's true. I don't think that's ever been aimed at Rich before. Your signature line. Wow. 
This yeah. is a huge well, moment. What a huge you, moment. You've got it now, cowboy, and you better get used to it. <laughs> I am feeling this massive adrenaline rush at this. I mean I can't I can't <laughs> wait to shit on chopping mall. <laughs> Wow. So guys, <laughs> we've done it. We, we, we have crowned a champion. Vic lobbied hard for a dark horse candidate to knock off the juggernaut, which has always been the shining. We've always acknowledged that it was the shinings tournament to lose. And I do find it so fitting that rich who, resisted the shining every step of the way was its biggest detractor did cast the deciding vote to make the right choice and anoint the shining as the greatest haunted house film of all time. Even if it was by TKO. (laughs) All right, guys, we've made it through COVID-19 probably, you know, we could drop dead tomorrow, but yeah. for the most part, um, we've we've yeah, served. Knock, knock on wood, John. Okay, can you do that for me? <laughs> there it is. There it is. But you know, we've certainly been through a lot of dark times in the the making of this podcast, and it's been pretty trippy and pretty surreal. And you know, we've we've lost friends and loved ones, and and persevered and had a lot of laughs and good times and new opportunities and it's been a lot of fun guys so i want to thank you for going on this ride and um it's been my privilege so well put john hopefully uh yeah hopefully it's not the end of the road but you never know and so say your say your farewells everybody yeah now we're all gonna die of covid because john fucking jinxed us but that's fine (laughs) no guys this has been this has been awesome like I cannot tell you how awesome this has been. This is this this feels like the culmination of all the hours I wasted watching horror films, cheap VHS horror films uh, on Friday and Saturday nights, and and that all seems to have paid off in really putting our minds to work at something that I think is worthwhile and I think has some value in in figuring out this genre and in understanding what works and you guys are awesome. And I love the way that we work together and the way that we talk through these things. And this has been a blast. I seriously, I I fucking love it. Like I so look forward to our recordings and uh, I'm so glad that there are people who are actually listening to this. I hadn't told you guys this. I get a Facebook friend request from a fucking stranger in San Diego who was like, I listened to the podcast and I really like your insights. I did not accept his friend request. And if you're listening, I'm sorry. That's just, I got pictures of my kids and stuff on there. So, you know, like the, like the, the, uh, the March Mad Men Facebook page. And we'll, we'll try and communicate more through that. We would but, love to, we would love to. Um, but yeah, like, it's awesome that there are people out there listening to this and I hope that they're getting as much out of it as I am. We're so grateful for you guys being with us this through this whole process. So thanks again, rich take us home. And I apologize for keeping you up this late, buddy. Oh man. Take us home is always a tall order. (laughs) Um, I want to thank the fine people at pizza port. Um, (laughs) 
and the, and the producers at Shutter. Uh, I feel like they really support us along the whole way. Um, I want to thank Vikram Wheat for being a uh, a true brother in, in arms the whole way. He's always willing to to, to listen to you and and hear you out um, and can come up with incredibly in, insightful comments just off the top of his head or sometimes conjuring them um, on the long commute home. I am consistently impressed. Um, John, you were a man of your word two episodes in when you said, if I vote for The Shining in the final episode, I'll never have to watch Session 9 again. Well, it turns out that you, you kept your word, and I, I admire you for it. Uh, but, John, I, I also admire your, uh, your perseverance in keeping the, the podcast uh, running. You are a, an excellent captain. Um, Thank you. And uh, and I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me along this ride. Man, it's been great to have you, bud. You've uh, yeah, you've been the perfect third man. We sure did, and uh, we love you all. Adios. And if your house is haunted, just move out. For the love of God, just move out. Get an apartment. Get a hotel. Put the TV outside. Find a snowmobile. Whatever you have to do. Call Zelda Rubenstein. Just figure it out, man. Adios. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.